Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Director of Quantitative Market Strategy, Denise Chisholm, is back on the program to lay out the economic factors driving the markets and share what indicators she's keeping an eye on. Denise talks about the indicators on the money supply side of things. She shares what she believes was the driving force behind inflation. She lists the unemployment rate and supply chain disruptions as the main issues. Furthermore, Denise says she believes the pandemic and governments giving money to a mass amount of people also caused high inflation. Historically, the more money the U.S. consumer gets, the more likely inflation will accelerate. Denise also talks about value, growth, and the tech sector and how inflation fits in. She believes inflation isn't as sticky as many investors think. She says until we get back to relative valuation levels, inflation is going to decelerate rapidly. This podcast was recorded on December 15th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. A cacophony of voices from central banks around the world. Uh, you, do you believe them? Yeah, well, so we've certainly seen a downshift in terms of how much they're hiking, but I do think the rhetoric was a, a little caught the market a little off guard in the sense that it was much more hawkish than maybe many investors expected. That said, I would not, as an investor, want to invest based on what I think the Federal Reserve or the ECB is going to do, right? This was, remember, just a year ago, these two teams were sort of team transitory, right? They got the forecast pretty wrong. So right now, both central banks are really sending a message to the markets that's saying, hey, we think inflation is stickier. We think we're still going to hike, albeit at a slower pace. Do we trust them or not? And I think that the answer is more in the data that you see in terms of from an investment perspective, what you'd be willing or what I would want to be willing to bet on versus what they say. Because we know that last year, again, if you fast forward, you have a one-year time horizon, what they said they were going to do didn't match what they actually did. So are we in the exact same position starting 2023 with what they say they're going to do, we're going to be quite hawkish, versus what ends up being the case that they do? And I think that that's where we need to focus more on leading indicators for inflation rather than what the Federal Reserve is saying. So let's talk about some of those. Do we talk about leading indicators specifically on the money supply side of things, taking a look ultimately at what, you know, what's coming out of the market, really, which is the whole purpose of this um large experiment. Yes. No, and it is in some ways a large experiment. And I suppose it always matters what you think was the driving force behind inflation. We can talk about the unemployment rate, but I don't think that that's it. There's certainly been supply chain disruptions that we can watch in terms of supplier deliveries. And that is largely unwound or isn't 
process of unwinding. But the third, and I think that the real issue that the pandemic highlighted was we gave a bunch of, a bunch of money to a whole lot of people and it was in proportion of GDP, I think it was like 8% entirely. And that led to inflation. You can measure that in money supply. And that's really what made this cycle different. And that's really what made inflation different this time. It's a real monotonic correlation going back to history. The more money the U.S. consumer gets, the more likely inflation is to accelerate. So this is really the flip of where we were exactly where sort of team transitory got it a little wrong, right? Even though money supply was actually accelerating quite rapidly, they're like, we think that this is going to you know, blow over. Uh, and it may actually blow over, but in a different timely fashion that maybe they were estimating, because it is a very strong correlation. But now where we are currently, the starting point matters. So we are over the last six months at one of the steepest contractions, at, at the only contraction really ever seen, certainly of this magnitude going back to 1950. I think that this was the, one of the key drivers behind inflation. And if history is right, what this translates into is monotonically lower inflation. The overall rate, this is historic rate, but you could show acceleration, which would lead to a sharp deceleration in the CPI. So I think a lot of the drivers that we have seen throughout the course of the last year have now reversed. And it's just a matter of when those lags hit the overall CPI. We're already starting to see it. So what we saw was a little bit of a juxtaposition between the lighter than expected CPI and the hawkish Fed. But net-net, of the two things, rate expectations are actually lower. And I think that that's the right market interpretation because ultimately the Fed will follow the data. The Fed will follow the data. Investors watching the question of liquidity, what are they meant to do to that? So as you say, that amount of money was put in short order right into the economy and it is being taken out now. Does that leave us about even, or do we look at a liquidity crunch? Yes, no, it's funny because a lot of people do translate this money supply into liquidity for the market. And I have to say, Pamela, it's a really interesting thing because when I look at the data, it says exactly the opposite. Meaning that this money supply, I think that there's, again, I, I get the theory, like if there's excess money supply sloshing around, people are going to invest it in the stock market. That's going to drive stocks up. So therefore, if money supply is contracting, there's less excess money sloshing around. I get the theory. When you plot it out, going forward, when money supply is deeply negative, when you think that there would be this massive withdrawal of liquidity, it's actually the highest odds of the market advance, right? 84%. And when you have that excess money supply growth sloshing around, that's actually the worst time to invest, 62% odds of the market advance. So what you see is it's actually the opposite of what you think, because usually if there is a lot of excess liquidity in the market, it's because growth is so poor. And if there is a liquidity market decline, it may be that at that time, growth is re-accelerating, in part because maybe the Fed doesn't need to be as hawkish as it is. Interesting. It, although, of course, it's still talking very, very hawkish. D just one more point to what you were just saying there. Um, is is Are the, the odds of of having a market advance tied up with the fact that we've already gone through the pain? Is that sort of the, yes. at this point? This is the tricky part, because I get what strategists are saying, which is, look, this would be the first, if we're approaching a recession in 2023, which we may well be, there's been never a point in history, there's been no point in history, stocks have bottomed before the recession already happened. True statement. Also a true statement is, at the cusp of any recession, stocks have never gone down 
peak to trough 30% either. So then the question remains is, can you discount a recession before it actually happens? I would like to lean on the fact that there are many indicators that are indicating recessionary levels, meaning that it's sort of like, I'm going to call it visible. So one way to define it mathematically, and I'll put all these charts up on my charts of the week. I actually just presented it yesterday. If you say, okay, I have perfect foresight. I know payrolls are going to contract next year. So we will finally get an NBER defined recession, right? That's the way they define recessions. They will call it at some point. Usually by the time they call it, it's over. And usually that's the time you want to buy stocks anyway, but that's beside the point. So let's just assume that that actually happens next year. So you say, okay, if I knew that that would happen, what are the odds that stocks go up? It's actually not as bad as you would think, 50-50 odds, 1% to 2% advance on average. Again, wide dispersion or range. It doesn't really tell you whether to buy or sell. You could argue that it's below average returns. But two things you need to know out of that data set. One, the more stocks have gone down the year before, the more likely it is, despite the fact that payrolls go up, go down, that stocks actually go up. And with our peak to trough decline at 20 to 25%, you're at 90 to 100% odds of, of a market advance, despite the fact that payrolls actually might contract. Point two, and I think that this is an interesting one, there are a whole lot of indicators out there at the bottom quartile, right? This is one of the reasons why people say this is the most forecasted recession in history, right? The LEI is negative, NAPM is below 50, Consumer confidence is at bottom decile levels. CEO confidence is at bottom decile levels. The yield curve is inverted. I could name 10 more. All of them are at their lowest percentile ranks in history. And if you said, does any of that matter? If you have all these indicators that are saying, ding, 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 there is going to be a recession, but payrolls haven't contracted. That's actually happened a third of the time historically. And at that third of the time, remember, if you knew payrolls were going to contract, you'd say 50-50 market odds, 1% to 2% advance in the market. All of a sudden, there's 50-50 odds, go to 80%. Market returns go to 11%. So what are the, all the data that I just told you? One, two things matter, whether or not payroll, payrolls may contract next year. It matters how much you went down the year prior. Been a lot. Two, it matters what other leading indicators have already contracted. More visible a recession is, the more likely that stocks are to have already discounted. So that might mean that we end up in a recession in 2023, but I, it wouldn't surprise me based on that look of history if stocks actually advanced through it. And it is already priced in, or the ch there are certainly indicators. There are, there's a good chance that it's already priced in. So right. can we go from that to what might work? I mean, this is all mm -hmm. the sort of question of, of sector leadership, of, of what looks interesting coming down the pike and, and how different is it from perhaps the last 15 to 20 years? Um, how different actually is it, do you think? It's always different, it's very different. So we'll just, you know, it's different. And every recession is very different. And yet the patterns are very similar. So it's funny. So when I look and I, I do this and I had three different takes of this data and all came up with sort of the same pattern recognition, which is if you knew even payrolls were gonna contract, Cyclicals are modestly better than defensives. Consumer discretionary is leadership with 70 plus percent odds. And energy and utilities, but we can pick on energy right now, is the laggard. That is true, more true, more straight in the data, if you have LEIs contracting, meaning if the recession was a little bit more visible. This is true when CEO confidence is low. And this is a lot of the indicators that I'm seeing why I said, you know, starting in June, July, defense actually got expensive. 
right? right? And the margin of safety is really impacted by those relative valuation starting levels. So as much as people are saying, well, it's all about the macro, to me, I see a very different pattern in terms of those relative valuations, because at the beginning part of the year, defense actually outperformed quite substantially, but starting from a really solid valuation level. And that was when consumer staples was green on my scorecard, um, partly because it had that valuation support. And it's really made no really inroads since that time. Right. So we've had this market decline, despite the fact that, um, you know, obviously, because, you know, expectations for rates have gone up. But yet consumer staples didn't provide you any more margin of safety. You might as well just have owned, you know, the, the overall index since that relative valuation starting point. So I think the fact that that starting point, again, with the recession being what's called, quote, visible, is going to impact what sectors actually work in 2023. And I think that they're more likely to be economically sensitive. I would say the top two now, and I'm re-ranking, um, really probably in this meeting would be consumer discretionary, which keeps the top slot down on the cap spectrum. I think that there's more opportunity in small and mid caps across the board of the sectors, but specifically in consumer discretionary. I'm actually now going to put materials, specifically metals and mining. I think that, again, that is that pattern to recognize, and energy is acting increasingly like defense. When I look at that market playbook, it looks a lot like utilities. It looks like a lot like consumer staples to me. It looks a lot like, again, like 30% odds are not zero. But when you have a whole bunch of indicators flashing on 30% odds, I don't think that you want to necessarily bet that as your top position. Your view on value okay. versus growth. I think I think you've gone into that somewhat. Maybe you can answer more of it, but I'll just put another one to you. In your opinion, sorry, let's just go to the inflation and interest rates uh, going higher for longer. So maybe we can sort of maybe, mm. yeah, put them put them both in your answer somehow. But uh, I can I'll answer just separately because they're not as related as you think. I know that investors want to relate the two, but again, starting points on val- valuation sometimes matter more than macro factors. We can talk about technology specifically. I'm going to answer it in three ways then. So first, value versus growth. Look, value has had a historic run, especially the more you go down the cap spectrum, the more historic the run has been over the course of the last two years, really never been seen in the So that said, like, even if you thought that inflation stays, stays higher for longer, a little bit like energy, like this is pretty rare. Um, I think you could easily take a year off, maybe within a secular cycle, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if value and growth was sort of a push or sort of neutral for the next, let's call it 12 to 18 months. And that's sort of what I'm seeing in my data set. I think you need to pick your spots for value. I think there's more opportunities for growth, but you need to pick your spots there. If I were to pick factors instead of sectors, I would say value or growth neutral relative to each other. I actually like beta or volatility because it's that economic sensitivity. So I think that that's actually where the opportunity is from a factor perspective. Let me translate that to to technology, and then I'll get to the inflation question. Technology's relative starting point is massively different than it was in the last 10 years. In the last 10 years, it was bottom quartile, or at least bottom half, price to free cash flow and relative forward PE. We are now, we're not in the top quartile anymore. We're out of it, but we're still in the top quartile. That's dramatically different. So you can say, Denise, are you concerned that inflation is going to decelerate too rapidly? I am. Are you concerned that we're basically going to go back to exactly where we were before the pandemic? Yes, I am. But I'm not sure the technology in that situation is going to be leadership because the relative valuation starting point is massively different. 
So when you think about as an investor, like, do I care more about relative valuation or do I care about the macro factor of inflation? This is where historical data can help, right? So you can quartile it out and say, do I'm expensive or I'm cheap? And whether or not I know that inflation accelerates or decelerates, what are my historic odds? And what you'll find is when stocks are expensive, you really get below 50-50 odds for technology as a sector to actually outperform or let's call it be leadership, unless you think, and I don't, that inflation is going to be under 2%, well in the bottom quartile. So look, if you think inflation is going to get back there over the next 12 months, then technology might be your a, a top position for you. If you think it's going to take a while to get there, by a while, I mean more than 12 months, I think we'll get in that range. Uh, and I think that we will probably tip below 2%. Uh, over the course of the next three to five years, I don't think that inflation is is as sticky as many investors think. I do think that we're really, from a risk reward perspective, shifting back to that. I'm a little bit more nervous that the next crisis is going to be deflationary, not inflationary, uh, and maybe the Fed potentially oversolve. We'll see how that plays out. But until we get back to relative valuation levels, I think that even despite the fact that I think inflation is going to decelerate rapidly, I don't think growth in technology is going to be your leadership sector. Based on that, the, the Fed is in a position with rates high. I mean, you know, at least right. going back the last couple of decades, they can cut. I mean, they've, they've yes. got the ability to cut. You look at Christine Lagarde speaking today, the ECB, uh, lots of hawkish talk there, almost um, shockingly, some might say. Um, but they're in quite a different position because they haven't moved along the, the interest rate rises as quickly. It's exactly right. I mean, and I think that when you think of what the next cycle that the Federal Reserve or maybe even investors should be positioning for, what we learned from what the UK went through is that there will be no fiscal stimulus. There will be no 8% of GDP to save you next time, U.S. consumer or any other consumer. There will be no government spending push. This will have to come, the cushion from the blow of whatever recession comes next will have to come in monetary policy. So from the Federal Reserve perspective, the higher you are able to go, the more likely you are to be able to cut to cushion that blow. You're right, the ECB is in the exact opposite position. In some ways, that their inflation rate has been stickier, partly because of the energy crisis and partly because of their depreciating currency relative to the dollar, and it has been more of a problem. They have been back on their heels not wanting to add to the stress of European consumers by adding rates to that push. But what they are finding is they are losing credibility on inflation, which is staying higher for longer, which, again, no real surprise given the currency dynamics over there. So there, as much as people are saying, well, Europe is in a recession, so they may be the early cycle play out, and the U.S. is about to go into recession, and they're the late cycle play in, I'm not sure if it's actually flipped because the ECB may need to do more and go further than the Federal Reserve has to do. Yeah, because inflation sticks for longer. It's, it's really interesting. Are we in a market not unlike or like 2000 to say 2003 or, you know, the early aughts um, where it was sort of a long crawl back upwards? Yeah. So the question is on price. Uh, I don't know. Right. But if you say, does it look like that? When I look at the data, I'll say unequivocal no. So the real problem in that recession was not the economy, right? So the unemployment rate was really, you know, went up, but dominated by the tech sector. 
consumption didn't really contract on a real basis. Jobs contracted only modestly. The unemployment rate went from, let's call it four to six, and I might be getting those numbers wrong, but close enough, right? It was a mild recession. It was not a mild recession in the stock market for two reasons. One of which we know that technology stocks were overvalued and PEs went you know, from 24 times to, to 15 times. Mm, sound familiar? The second thing that happened was they had no earnings growth, like none. Like earnings growth declined by almost 50%. I mean, in some of the numbers that I look at, we don't have that situation. Part of the problem with 2000 and what was ultimately reflected in that three-year downtrend for the market is that there turned out to be no there there in terms of profitability of that section of the market. Look, you can say, will this turn out to be the case this time? Uh, Maybe, but I'm not seeing anything like that in the data. I mean, I don't want to say I was actually around and investing at that time. Like, it seemed pretty evident that these companies were completely unprofitable. I'm looking at the S&P cap-weighted aggregate you know, profitability, and it looks pretty solid. So, FX yeah. is all-time lows, free cash flows of all-time highs. I wouldn't, at this point, to me, I wouldn't want to bet against corporate profitability. And in some ways, that's, you know, if, if we're thinking about how it will look in terms of a, a massive margin compression or job losses, then I'd bet on job losses and less of a margin compression because corporate corporate America has shown the ability to uh, really retain their profitability over the course of the last 20 years, which is dramatically different than what we saw in the bubble downturn. So I think that the profitability changes that equation, and I think that that changes your peak crop contracting in the market. It's like the, the story, the backdrop is different too. What would you say now that, you know, everyone sort of chewed through the CPI number and, and also obviously the, the Fed decision, but taking a look at the PCE, which I know you, I think you either prefer or also look at, yeah. when you compare the two, is there anything uh, that, that you might want to compare for investors? What, what do you see there? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So the CPI, you can use some of the data from the CPI to put it into the Later, so you know part of what's moving, and I think that the estimates are now just under 0.2, so it would be in the 0.1 range, which is likely to come in. So again, PCE deflator is usually lower than the CPI, partly because owners' equivalent rent is instead of 40% in the CPI, it's only 20%. But here's a couple of interesting data points, and I think that these are worth keeping your eye on. You've heard me say before that if you look at everything X shelter, right? Owners' equivalent rent, we're going to get to that in a second. You look at everything else in the CPI X that. And you annualize it. You look at it at a run rate basis, we're at zero to negative on the last three to six months. That that CPI rating was the second back-to-back month decline in everything X shelter. And it will be more significant in the PC. And we had never seen anything like this in the 70s. Didn't get a decline in everything else X that until I think the like early to mid 80s, I want to say 83, 80, somewhere in there. So this is not looking at anything like entrenched inflation to me, right? And when you look at that, and Powell did acknowledge this in his speech, I mean, I think that maybe investors are really now have dug in on the owner's equivalent rent. It's a deeply lagged indicator relative to what real rents and housing prices are actually doing right now. Whether or not it's accurate, we don't need to get into it. But let's just call it deeply lagged, the way the calculation and you can actually show it. There's usually about a one to 18, one year to 18 month lag between when that accelerates and when it trues up to whatever is in the housing market indicators that we can see. 
we can see in the housing market indicators that even in the US, and I know it's more in Canada that just came out, housing prices are declining as are rents. Declining, not accelerating at a, at a lower rate. Ultimately, that is going to true up to that number. So what are you left with? You're left with a CPI and a PCE deflator running around zero, with the Federal Reserve around five. So again, that map, I and mean, we're not going to get to that run rate of zero instantaneously, and that shelter isn't going to go to zero instantaneously, so it's going to be moving there. But what does that tell you? Is that it tells you that the Federal Reserve may have room to decrease rates. And does it need to, could it, will it pull the lever on, on the QT side? It's tightening, um, not, you know, just letting the bonds run off, essentially. Is there is there any reason for it to, to reactivate on that side? Or, or has it got enough yeah. room on interest rates it doesn't need to? Could certainly see that, right? Where you sort of pause more on rates and do more on QT. And that's all dependent on the mortgage market. So I think investors have seen the chart that said, you know, the last time mortgage rates, when they were at peak, and I actually don't know where they exactly are right now. I think that they've declined by at least 50 to 80 basis points. But from the peak where they were, I think was at 730, or at least the one I look at, the last time mortgage rates were at 730, the Fed was at six and a half. So that tells you what QT was doing, because QT was dominant in the mortgage market, right? I mean, they bought treasuries before, but we've never bought mortgages in this size. They own all of the mortgages, (laughs) right? So that's really the differential that's going to allow this to sort of impact the long end of the curve as we progress from rate hikes. And there might be a progression into QT to modestly maintain some more spread, meaning that if the Fed paused, you wouldn't want mortgage rates to come in that much. Do you want them to dip to four? Do you want them to dip to five? Maybe not. Maybe you sell mortgages into that to sort of maintain that spread uh, or continue to slow the housing market. So that's definitely an option. I do think that they have more levers to pull that will slow portions of the market or portions of the curve, as opposed to the one blunt instrument of the Federal Reserve rate. So potentially, as you've laid out for us, we've got a lot priced in, be it recession, be it higher interest rates, and obviously the, the the inflation story. Plus, you've got a Fed that has, as I understand it, far more tools in its toolbox than it's had actually in a long time. Well said. Well said. I mean, in some ways, like I think that the problem last cycle was that the Federal Reserve never had rates high enough to be able to cut them enough to ever cushion any recession. I mean, that's in some ways what we were worried about all of the decade post the financial crisis. Now, this might have reversed that situation. Again, we won't be able to have fiscal at our beck and call for the next recession. But at this time, it does look like, again, if I'm right on inflation and this math actually ports to something that is durable and and sustainable and not sticky, then we will have the ability for the Federal Reserve to cushion that blow by lowering interest rates. Is there anything else you just wanted to, to follow up with? What I feel like I always follow up with a final statement on, which is why do you own equities in your portfolio? And the reason you own equities in your portfolio is because on a compounded basis, they're one of the best asset classes to be exposed to because they go up 8% a year. Again, these are broad averages. And that's the problem with them, right? 8% does not exist. If you're an investor and you say, I would like my 8% this year, you will not get it. The only way to get that 8% is to look through 25% of the time 
a 15% downturn to be able to say 75% of the time you have an average. So you actually, to achieve that 8%, you need to be in for the wild ride. Denise Chisholm, it's great to have some time with you before the holidays. We wish you and your family uh, a very good holiday and, and look forward to seeing you in the new year. Thank you, me too. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.